So sometime around the second century AD, there lived a Buddhist monk who was called Nagarjuna. He may have lived in southern India. He wrote in Sanskrit, which would have been used in that area at the time. And otherwise, very little is known about him, other than that he wrote what became one of the most influential Buddhist texts of all time. It's called The Fundamental Verses of the Middle Way. This is an excerpt from a chapter called The Investigation of the Ennobling Truths. The Dharma taught by the Buddhas relies on two truths, ambiguous truths of the world and truths of sublime meaning. Those who do not understand the difference between these two truths cannot understand the profound reality of the Buddha's teachings. So what I want to talk about tonight are these two truths, which are often referred to as relative and absolute truth. This idea of two truths is really fundamental to what we're doing here. It's a teaching that's found in some form, as far as I know, in all of the different various Buddhist schools. So like the Four Noble Truths that Steve spoke about last night, it's really an essential element of Buddhist thought, a defining idea. And it's a large part of the tradition of Burmese Buddhism that Steve and Kamala and I have practiced and studied. And it's been a major influence on the style of practice that we've been teaching here. It's the idea that as human beings, we're multidimensional. Our lives are multifaceted, they play out on different levels of reality. And what we're doing here is learning to connect with those different levels of reality. So I'll start by talking a little bit about how we normally see things. This mode of seeing is called panyati in the Pali terminology, panyati. This is another one of those technical terms from the language of the original teachings that's it's a little bit difficult to translate to English. And different people use different names for it that capture different aspects of its meaning. So it may be called relative reality or conventional reality or conceptual reality, maybe consensual reality. These are all names for this one level of reality that point to different facets of it. The term that I personally find most helpful to use is conceptual reality, because that points directly to what this level of seeing things is made up of, which is concepts. It's what you might call our conceptual model of the world. It includes all of our ideas about what things are and what they do and how they're related. So for example, just sitting here in the hall right now, we all have a conceptual framework for what's going on here. I'm me, you're you, I'm talking, you're listening. It's evening, it's summer, it's 2008. We're here in the meditation hall at IMS in Barrie in Massachusetts in the United States on the planet Earth. <laughs> all that kind of understanding which is vast, if we really started to list out all of the concepts that, are, that each of us has just about what's happening right in this very moment, we could go on and on and on. And that vast array of concepts is active in our minds all the time, whenever we're tuned into this level of conceptual reality. Nagarjuna called this whole conceptual framework that we operate within the ambiguous truths of the world which is why it's sometimes called relative reality. And we come up against this all the time as we move through life. The concepts are fluid, they're relative. How they form and change depends on all sorts of factors. So since we each have a unique mind and history, we all end up with unique conceptual frameworks. And for the most part, there's enough overlap that we can manage to work, work well enough together to get by but we see all the time how we run into problems. People have different ideas and opinions, and everyone really has their own unique view or interpretation of what's going on at any particular time. Even if we have a very similar opinion to someone else, it's never going to be exactly the same in every point, in every detail. So that's why if you take a group of people who are all experiencing the same events, each one will have different ideas about what's happening, what's going on different thoughts, different interpretations, different reactions. So again, for example, just sitting here in the hall right now, we're all seeing and hearing about the same thing. 
but each of us is really having our own per completely unique personal experience of this event. To, just to start off with, each of us has a different concept of who ex is having this experience. So in a way it's the same because for each of us it's me, but me is a different character for each of us. Then we all have different ideas and opinions about each other and about the hall and about the speaker and about the talk. To some of you I may seem young, to others I may seem old. It's all relative. As Nagarjuna says, it's ambiguous. So what's true on this level basically depends on who you ask and when. And we see that even our own ideas and opinions change over time. We pick up new ideas, we discard old ones. Some ideas remain very fixed throughout our lives, others can just change in an instant. So even our own personal conceptual framework is not a given, it's mutable, it's subject to change. These discrepancies are very obvious in the world today, in conflicts over who has the right view of something going on in the world. Is it the Americans or the Iraqis, the Christians or the Muslims, the Israelis or the Palestinians, the Republicans or the Democrats? Each of these groups, well actually each, each individual within these groups, is sure that they have the right view, the correct understanding of whatever conflict it is that they're engaged in. But the fact is that no one has the right view, just by the very nature of this kind of reality. There is no right view in any kind of absolute sense, because these are all just conceptual truths. They're inherently subjective, inherently ambiguous, inherently diverse. And it becomes potentially very harmful, both on the personal and on the societal level, when we believe that they are otherwise. The classic metaphor for this level of conceptual reality is the one that Steve gave last night, that it's said to be like a mirage or a rainbow. Conditions come together, light, moisture, particles in the air, a particular point of view, and the rainbow appears. And the conditions change, and it changes, or it disappears. And so too all of the conceptual world's various views and opinions. There's a very well-known, important discourse where the Buddha mentions the various flavors of ideas and concepts that make up our conceptual picture of the world. It's called the Kalama Sutta, or Advice to the Kalamas. And at one time, the Buddha visited a place in northern India that was inhabited by, inhabited by this group of people called the Kalamas, the land of the Kalama. And the Buddha arrived in their capital and was walking around, and the people that saw him were very inspired by the nobility and serenity of his appearance, but they were also skeptical. There were ways in which the Buddha's time was actually much like ours today. It was a time of a lot of changes going on in social structures and organization, a time of unrest and uneasiness. People were really questioning deeply what life was about. And as the Kalamas were relatively prosperous, it was said that they were blessed with particularly good weather and lots of natural resources. So there was no shortage of spiritual teachers coming to their towns trying to gain followers among them. So the Buddha walked through the, through the town and some of the people approached him and they said to him very frankly, they said, Sir, we have had many spiritual teachers visit our town and each one has been able to propound his teachings in an excellent, very believable way. Equally, though, every one of these teachers has denied and negated every other teacher. Now we are totally confused. We don't know who to believe. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> and the Buddha's response was very interesting. He didn't just say, well, of course you should believe me, and then go on to explain why. Instead, he pointed out the inherently unreliable nature, or ambiguous nature, of ideas and concepts. So he said to them, never believe any spiritual teaching because it's repeatedly recited, or because it's written down in scriptures, or because it's been handed down from teacher to disciple, or because everybody around you believes it, or because it has metaphysical qualities, or because it agrees with what you believe anyway, or because you can rationalize it, 
Don't believe it because it's a viewpoint that you need to defend. And don't believe it because the teacher is a reputable person or because the teacher says so. So the Buddha is saying very explicitly that we shouldn't rely on conceptual truth for our understanding of reality. This passage is most often explained as an encouragement to really see for ourselves what's true and what's not, what's useful and what's not, what leads to less suffering and what doesn't. And it is that, but this doesn't mean that we should rely on our own ideas and views either. It doesn't mean that we should trust our own version of conceptual reality any more than anyone else's. So if you look at this list of what not to trust, about half of it refers to not just swallowing somebody else's view of reality, not just accepting somebody else's conceptual framework, the things we hear from others or read in books, ideas handed down by tradition or held in popular belief or espoused by a convincing authority. But the other half of the list of untrustworthy sources of truth refers to our own ideas and views to the conceptual reality that we create in our own minds, our own reasoning, conjecture, analysis, imagination, the ideas and views that we arrive at because they seem reasonable, they seem logical, probable, convenient, or appealing in some way. So this is a very radical proposition that we need to look somewhere else entirely other than conceptual reality in order to gain true understanding reliable understanding. A few years ago, I was helping Steve with a project that he's been working on to get one of the modern classics of Burmese Dharma literature translated and published in English, which is a very uh, large and comprehensive meditation manual that was written by the late Mahasi Sayada, a great uh, teacher within this tradition. And I was doing some editing on some of the text And early on in the book, there's a chapter on just this topic that I'm speaking about tonight. This was actually the inspiration for this talk about relative and absolute reality. So there's a whole section where the Sayadaw expands out these unreliable sources of knowledge that the Buddha mentions in the Kalama Sutta. And it really made me reflect for the first time on just how much of our worldview really comes from these conceptual sources. So much of our understanding of ourselves in the world is really just secondhand, if we think about it. It's mind-boggling just to think about our childhoods and all of the ideas about ourselves and life that we absorbed from early influences, from our caregivers, from our peers, from our communities, the media. And we can really see here in, ret- in retreat just how entrenched some of these ideas are. We may have been told that we were smart or that we were stupid attractive or unattractive, that we were fun or that we were boring, that we were good or that we were bad. And yet if we reflect a bit, we can see that these are or were really just other people's opinions, their own relative subjective view of us based on all of their conditioning, their history, their opinions, their worldview. But if we don't recognize it, if we hang on to those views, we can, if we continue to believe in them, to relate to them, as if they really had some kind of objective truth in some absolute way, then it can really be harmful. It really becomes clear on retreat how much suffering this kind of clinging to these views can cause. And I can see this among my own friends, among the people that I know. I have one uh, very dear friend who early on in his life was labeled as learning disabled because he had certain difficulties in achieving, uh, proving himself within the educational system the way that it was structured at the time. He had difficulty uh, performing in the ways that were expected to qualify as successful in that setting. And he really internalized this label of being disabled, of being deficient in some way, of not having what it takes to succeed in life really. And so now, even as an adult, despite having tremendous talents, a lot of creativity, and really wonderful personal qualities, he goes through life expecting to fail. And this is not an uncommon scenario. There's really no objective reality to, to that view that he's deficient. But he's internalized it so deeply that it's still a real fetter, a real impediment in his life, and a real source of suffering. 
On the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, I also have a friend uh, who early on in her life was labeled as gifted. And the work that was demanded of her by the educational system came really easily. She was kind of a whiz at those standardized tests, really good at the multiple choice questions. And she just sailed through her youth getting top marks and lots of praise and came out of it with a very high opinion of herself, a very high opinion of her abilities and her qualities. And she's continually surprised and disappointed now in her adult life when things don't go quite so easily for her, when her career or her relationships don't go quite the way she'd like and people don't just automatically recognize her, imperi- her inherent superiority. So that too is a source of difficulty, a source of suffering in her life. And we could all come up with examples like this of people we know who are limited by early messages that they hang on to. We can see here just how it plays out in our own hearts and minds. We absorb and trust all of the secondhand knowledge from a very early age, and it continues throughout our lives. Every single idea that we have about ourselves in the world is acquired in one of these two ways, illustrated in the Kalama Sutta. We either adopt someone else's idea, other people's ideas, taking on externally imposed conceptual truths, or we reason things out for ourselves, creating internally generated conceptual truths. And so much of our understanding is gained in this way that we take it completely for granted. So just as an example, it can be interesting to reflect on things like, how do you know what your gender is? This really basic what we consider a basic element of our personality. Can you remember when you first realized that you were a girl or a boy, or how? Who were the people or what were the experiences that convinced you of that? What if no one had ever told you you were a girl or a boy? How would you know? Would you know? Is there any experience in your body or mind that corresponds to femininity? or any experience in your mind and body that corresponds to masculinity. And you can answer this for yourself when you sit down and see. What have you seen? Do your thoughts have a gender? Do your feelings have a gender? If we look, we can see that there is really nothing in our actual experience that communicates this very basic aspect of our self-image. So this is just one of countless things that we know about ourselves and others just on the level of conceptual reality things that we take totally for granted, but are really just part of this hearsay, etc. So what about this kind of intimidating and rarefied thing called absolute reality? What is that? In the Pali language, again, it's called paramata, paramata which can be translated literally as true truth, meaning real truth, or what's really true. And the English term for it that I like is empirical reality, because that kind of points to how we experience it. The term empirical in science means that something can be directly observed or measured, that instruments can pick it up. So by saying that absolute reality is empirical, That means it's what we can actually directly observe through our senses, that our instruments as human beings can pick up. These are the realities that we can know for sure and for ourselves without relying on all of that hearsay, etc. They're facts that we can be completely confident about because we've seen them directly for ourselves. And this is actually a relatively limited set of things if we think about it. So there's our physical experience that comes in through our nervous system and sense organs, all of the various sensations that we feel in our bodies, seeing, hearing, tasting, and smelling. And that's really all that ever happens in our physical experience, just those set of things over and over again in different ways and different combinations. It's pretty straightforward. So that's where we usually start with our meditation. It's kind of an easy entry into this experience of absolute reality. But there's also our mental experience, which includes everything that we can experience with our minds, which is very different from everything that we can know with our minds conceptually. The content or meaning of our mental activity is the realm of conceptual reality. 
but the absolute reality is just the direct experience of our mental processes themselves. What it feels like to think, what it feels like to remember, what the experience of our emotions actually is, rather than the stories that they tell. So there are these two ways of relating to our mental activity. The way of relative reality, where we pay attention to our ideas and concepts and see everything from the point of view of those concepts, what we call getting drawn into the story of our thoughts. And there's the way of absolute reality, where we're aware of the fact and direct experience of thinking itself. We don't get drawn in. We don't buy into the story. Instead, we know that Instead, we know what that mental activity actually feels like in the mind. An analogy for this is that it's like the difference between being on a raft and floating down a river with lots of stones and rapids and being on the bank of the river and watching the raft float by. So when we're caught up in our thoughts, we're really riding the rapids. We're carried wherever the river takes us, and we have no choice but to go with the flow. And if we're carried over a rock or a rapid, then we're stuck along for the ride, and all we can really do is hold on and hope for the best. But if we're sitting on the bank of the river, observing our thoughts from the perspective of absolute reality, then we can just watch the raft float by, and the next one, and the next one. We can rest in a place of stillness, on firm ground, as all of the thoughts float by. So this level of absolute reality is fundamentally different from conceptual reality. It's actually completely unrelated to thoughts, unrelated to concepts. Of course, we can and do use concepts to describe it, like in this talk. That's what I'm doing right now. We use the meditation instructions, and we remind ourselves of instructions. So we use words and concepts to point towards absolute reality. But the actual experience of it is non-conceptual or preconceptual. A good example of this is trying to just trying to describe in words the flavor of a food. This is a place where it becomes very obvious the gap between conceptual and absolute experience. So take, for example, chocolate, a flavor that some of us here may be looking forward to experiencing again in a couple of days. How would you describe chocolate to someone who's never tasted it? And occasionally I run into people like this in Asia who have just never tasted chocolate and they can't quite understand the draw of it. (laughs) What would you say about it? It's sweet, it's rich, it's chocolatey. (laughs) You know, if you're a real gourmand, you might be able to come up with a little bit more of an elaborate description. But is it really possible to convey that flavor of chocolate through a description that uses words, that uses concepts? You can't. The only way to really know that flavor, or any flavor, is to taste it for yourself. Once it hits your tongue and you're there with it, you're present, you know what it tastes like. And that's really how all of absolute reality is. The direct experience of it is really something else altogether from the description of it. So this example of the flavor of a food is a fairly simple one, but the same principle applies to all of absolute reality. What does heat really feel like? Does it feel like that word heat? No, it has its own unique taste, its own unique texture, its own unique quality, just like chocolate, which we can only know by really feeling it directly in the moment that it's happening. What does joy feel like or sorrow? We have to actually feel them in the moment that they're happening to know. And those direct experiences, although related to the concepts of them, are something entirely different from the concepts. And yet most of us are so used to relating to our life through the medium of concepts that we often don't realize that we aren't really feeling some aspect of experience. We can take it for granted that we know what we're feeling when in fact we don't. It's not actually the case. I came up against this on my first three-month retreat here. I got a bit into the retreat, and my mind started going through a personal history review, as it does for most yogis here at some point. (laughs) There were lots of painful emotions coming up, but I was trying to be diligent and to note the emotions, to try to label them, as I'd heard in the instructions. 
but I could never quite seem to figure out what it was that I was actually feeling. I had, a, I had lots of ideas about what I was feeling based on the contents of the thoughts and the memories. So I would see a thought go by and I could kind of, I could kind of assess that this thought ought to give rise to sadness and this other one ought to give rise to anger. Like if I was reading about this memory in a book or watching it on a TV show, that's what I would expect the characters to feel. But somehow I never quite felt confident about these labels. So I kept going into my interviews and complaining that I couldn't tell what I was feeling. I was really perplexed. So at some point, I just gave up. I just stopped trying to figure out what I was feeling. And a funny thing happened at that point, which is that I started to actually be able to feel what I was feeling, rather than just trying to label it, just trying to put the concept around it. I started, little by little, to be able to make that shift to the absolute reality, the empirical reality, to connect with all the sensations moving through my body and the changing texture of the mind as the various thoughts and memories move through. And it was still mostly unpleasant stuff. That part of it didn't change, unfortunately. (laughs) If only it were that easy. (laughs) But at the same time, there was the experience of being awake and actually living the reality of my emotional life in a way that I hadn't really in years, in a way that had been hidden by all of the ideas and concepts about what I was thinking and feeling. And at that point, I really didn't care anymore what the name for the experience was, what the name for the feeling was. The truth of the experience in the present moment was far greater, far deeper, really, than any thoughts that I could have about it. And also, ironically, it was at that point that I actually began, little by little, to be able to label the feelings, if I chose to, if I wanted to, just in a very simple, straightforward, easy way, because I was finally actually feeling them. It became clear to me, little by little, which experiences it was appropriate to call sadness, which experiences it was appropriate to call anger. But I wasn't blinded by those conceptual labels. I was in contact with the deeper truth behind them. So one way of thinking about what we're doing here is that we're learning to make this shift in perception from relative reality to absolute reality, from our concepts and ideas about experience to connecting with our actual experience directly. And everything that we do here is really in the service of that endeavor. The whole structure of the retreat is set up so that we don't have to spend any more time than necessary in relative reality. So we come to this secluded place where we're not going to be bombarded by the media. We leave our personal responsibilities behind. We can kind of let go of all of the thoughts about our to-do lists and what we need to accomplish. Things are arranged so that we don't really have to interact with each other. And we can let go of all of the thinking and conceptualizing that goes on around people and meeting people and being liked and not being liked. We, don't have, we have to do only a minimum of work so that we can let go of ideas about time and where we have to be and what we have to be doing and all the expectations of our day. And we don't read and write, which are by nature conceptual activities. So everything's really been optimized so that we don't have to engage with conceptual reality any more than absolutely necessary. And the instructions that we give here are all designed to keep pointing us back to absolute reality, back to awareness of our actual experience. It can start to seem a little complex at times. There's everything going on in the body and all of our thoughts and our feelings and intentions now. But it's all really just about being aware of something that's really happening in this moment something that's truly true in this moment, something that you can actually feel, anything. It doesn't actually matter what, so long as it's an empirical reality, an absolute truth, something that you can directly sense with your mind and body. And there are lots of techniques and skillful means that we can use to help us do this, to help us disengage from our ideas and concepts and connect with the deeper reality. But it all just comes down to being aware of something that's really true right in this moment, and the next moment, and the next moment. So 
So if we follow the schedule as best we can, and we follow the instructions as best we can, and we listen to our teachers as best we can, then inevitably we'll begin to connect more and more with absolute reality. There's no way to avoid it, actually. If we're being mindful, if we're making our best effort, then we'll get more and more tuned into our direct experience. You guys are all so much more sensitive to this than you were when you arrived a week ago, even though you may not realize it. And that, that as best we can part of what I was just saying is really important. It's important to realize that all we need to do is our best. We don't need to do any better than our best. We're trying to make a really fundamental shift in our perspective, and that's very difficult. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes practice. There's an analogy uh, that Joseph Goldstein likes to use. Joseph Goldstein is one of the founders of the center who's been teaching here for over 30 years now. He's been practicing since before I was born. And he likes to use this analogy of our idea of the Big Dipper, our perception of the Big Dipper. You know, when we go out in, uh, I guess it's the fall or winter, and we look up in the sky, if it's a clear night, the Big Dipper is going to be up in the sky, that particular arrangement of stars. And if we go out and look up, it's just so automatic. You know, we see that particular arrangement of stars. It looks kind of like a spoon or a ladle. And just automatically, the mind goes, Big Dipper. You can test this out for yourself on a night when it's clear. But it's so hard just to look into the sky and see those little lights arranged in that particular pattern and just be with the bare experience of just seeing the lights. The mind immediately wants to paste that concept onto that experience. So we can see how deeply conditioned it is. You know, we've been putting uh, those little glow-in-the-dark stars up on the, the ceiling of the room that my daughter sleeps in. She's two and a half now. And sure enough, one of the first ones that we put up was the Big Dipper. And you know, we go in there, we point it out to her. So she's already on the path to that concept. <laughs> so there's this very strongly conditioned tendency to relate to our experience through concepts. And the process of trying to see things differently is often messy. It's often frustrating. It's kind of like tuning one of those old-fashioned radios with the analog knob that you actually have to put your fingers on and turn it. <laughs> I actually had one of these up until just very recently. <laughs> so you have to adjust that kind of radio very carefully to tune it into the station that you want to listen to. There's the conceptual station, which is kind of like talk radio. You know, there's the incessant chatter and the call-in shows and the pundits and the commercials. And then there's the absolute station, which plays all sorts of really interesting music. And it's talk-free, no commercials. We may not always like what's playing on that station, but it's always very interesting. It's always something worth listening to. So there's those two different stations, those two different modes of listening. But there's also kind of an uncomfortable space in between them where there's a lot of crosstalk, where the signal may flip back and forth between the two, and there's little snippets of different things, and they're static. And that can be a bit grating. It can be a bit agitating in that in-between space before one or the other of the stations really comes into clear focus, before it really comes in clear and strong. We have to be very sensitive to the action of the dial and get a lot of experience adjusting it to be able to tune it just right into the station that we want. But with time and practice, then we can find it. We learn how to operate that dial. We learn to tune in to whatever we want to listen to. But even as we do this, it's important to remember that there's no inherent conflict between these two ways of seeing things. This is coming back to the teaching on the two truths again that as human beings, our lives include both of these levels of reality. And they're both valid within their own spheres. It's not any part of the Buddha's teaching that we need to reject conceptual reality, but simply that we need to see it in its proper light. We need to understand its true nature. The Buddha himself, after his enlightenment, didn't just continue sitting under the Bodhi tree in meditation experiencing absolute reality until he passed away from dehydration and starvation. He hung around the Bodhi tree for a while, enjoying his enlightenment, enjoying his peace, but then he moved on. He got up, he walked away, he ate, he drank, and he engaged very actively with the realm of concepts, 
teaching what he had learned for decades, for 45 years, it said, but without being fooled by the conceptual world as he moved through it. It said that Mara, the lord of illusion, would still come to see him very often, trying to fool him or entice him with greed, hatred, and delusion. But he would just kind of wag his finger at Mara and say, Mara, I see you. I see what you're up to there. So this cohabitation of these two levels of reality, their interrelatedness and their relationship, is a little bit like looking at something with the naked eye versus seeing it through a microscope. I can remember very clearly my first experience uh, in junior high school biology class doing a dissection. They had these really gross earthworms that had been stored in formaldehyde for us to take cultures of and prepare slides and then look at through the microscope, you know, and you can imagine all these 12-year-old girls, you know, on the level of the naked eye, this was just completely disgusting. But then we made up our slides and we put them under the microscope, and I was just so struck by what a completely different experience of the same thing it was. You know, you could see all the cell structures and there's just all sorts of detail and information in there that was, was not readily apparent from looking at the object just sitting there on the lab table. It's a completely different way of seeing, two completely different ways of seeing. And it's not that one of those is true and one of them is false, or one of them is better and one of them is worse. They're just two different ways of perceiving the same, same thing, two different ways of understanding the truth of that experience. So seeing relative and absolute reality is kind of like that. There's no inherent conflict between them. So it's not that as we learn to experience absolute reality, we start walking around saying things like, this psychophysical stream of phenomena is going to the dining room. (laughs) We still say, I'm going to the dining room. I'm having lunch. I'm taking a nap. I'm meditating. But there's an understanding, even as we say those things, that there's a deeper truth behind them. There's another way of understanding it. There's an absolute reality behind that. Or to put it in more compelling terms, if we say, I'm in love, or I have cancer, there's an understanding of the level on which, yes, that's true. But also an understanding that there's a level where there's a deeper truth. And we can hold both of those at the same time. So I've talked for quite a while now about relative and absolute truth and what they are and how we shift between them. But there's a really fundamental question about this topic that I haven't addressed yet, and that is simply, why bother? And someone asked this very question in the hall this morning, and probably many, if not all of you, have asked yourself this question at least once during this past week. And it's one that I asked myself many times early in my practice, like, what am I doing here? You know, this is so bizarre that we come here and we practice in this way. What is it really about? What's it for? We all know and love conceptual reality. It's familiar. It's easy. It's where we live our lives. It's where we grow up and grow old. It's where we have relationships and careers and take vacations and practice spiritual paths and all of that. And most of the people on this planet live out their entire lives on the level of conceptual reality without ever getting an inkling that there's really an alternative. And yet we wouldn't be here if we didn't realize on some level that conceptual reality really has some serious flaws. And those are the very flaws that Steve spoke about last night, the flaws of dukkha, that relative reality simply doesn't deliver on its promises of happiness. It makes so many promises. It offers so many rewards. But does it really deliver? The truth is that conceptual reality is actually exhausting. And this is especially obvious here on retreat. We really get to experience just how tedious and draining it is. Has anybody not gotten this yet? (laughs) You know, the endless stories, the dramas, the memories, the fantasies. It doesn't take very long before we're just sick of it, before we can feel how oppressive it is before we just want to say enough already, I want out. So many people come into interviews basically looking for some way to remedy this, for some way to slow down the thoughts, to get away from the thinking. 
But what we really want is not to stop thinking. What we really want is an escape from conceptual reality. So we're here because we've realized on some level that there has to be another way. And because we have faith on some level that there is another way and that this is the way. Precisely through tuning into absolute reality, through mindfulness. The Buddha said in the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, which is the teaching that's the basic, the basis, the, uh, the basic teachings for the practice that we do here. He said, this is the only way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of Nibbana, namely mindfulness. So out of this faith, out of this intuition that there is another way to find peace and happiness, we end up here. And as I said before, if we just do our best, we'll start to connect with our actual experience in more moments. And compared with being caught up in the dramas of conceptual reality, this really feels great. Because connecting with absolute reality gives us a chance to rest. (coughs) And you've seen this in your experience for shorter or longer periods. There are those times we can really just relax into the present moment and just feel a breath, just hear the sound of a bird, just notice a thought coming and going. Mostly there's nothing special going on in these moments, but they're real. They're the real experience of our lives. And so, there's, so they're rich. There's a vitality in them that's not in conceptual reality. Even the unpleasant experiences when we connect with them have this richness, this vitality to them. The more we cultivate the ability to rest in absolute reality, the more these moments can become a place of rest and rejuvenation where we can seek some refuge, where we can find some peace. The more we can resort to ultimate reality for a well-earned break from the hard work of being ourselves. And that's an invaluable benefit of this practice. It's a great asset in life when we cultivate that ability. But these benefits are not why the Buddha went to the trouble to teach this practice. So reflecting on Nagarjuna's verse again, the Dharma taught by the Buddhas relies on two truths, ambiguous truths of the world and truths of sublime meaning. Those who do not understand the difference between these two truths cannot understand the profound reality of the Buddha's teaching. So we practice tuning into absolute reality so that we can realize truths of sublime meaning and understand the profound reality of the Buddha's teaching. This brings a depth of equanimity that goes beyond the momentary letting go of concepts and thoughts, beyond that momentary relief. It brings lasting relief, the relief of deeply accepting how things truly are and living in harmony with that understanding. There's a famous Pali verse that goes like this. Anicca vata sankara upadavaya damino upajitva nirjanti pesamupasumo suko. All conditioned things are impermanent. It is their nature to arise and pass away. Understanding this brings peace, which is the greatest happiness. So this can sound pretty lofty, but it's actually a very natural and lawful process. It all unfolds spontaneously, automatically, just from connecting over and over again with our actual experience in the present moment. And there's actually nothing else that we can do to arrive at true peace and freedom, the peace and freedom of equanimity. There are two collections of poetry in the ancient teachings of the Pali Canon that are called the Terigata and the Teragata. And they contain the enlightenment stories of the earliest Buddhist practitioners, the first monks and nuns that ordained to practice under the Buddha's instruction. The first people who practiced in this way, this same way that we're practicing here, 
and realize the deepest truth of freedom from suffering. And some of the poems are really fascinating in their intimate and honest portrayal of spiritual life. We can really see how it was no different fundamentally for those men and women 2,500 years ago walking this path than for us today. The nature of the human mind hasn't changed in that time. And I want to share one poem from a woman named Patachara. Patachara had suffered through a very traumatic adult life. She had lost her husband and her two young children, one of them a newborn, under very uh, painful, horrible conditions. She had also lost her parents and her brother, her only other immediate family, in a great tragedy. And when she encountered the Buddha, she was basically just wandering through the countryside, mad, mad with grief, out of her mind, and this loss. Her mind was just unable to handle it. And she was out of her senses. But she encountered the Buddha, and he brought her around. And she joined the order of the nuns, and she practiced diligently, and went on to become a great teacher, and actually a mentor to many other women in the order. It said that the depth of her own past suffering gave her a really profound compassion for others, which helped to inspire them on their own path. And her enlightenment poem really illustrates the immediacy of her connection with absolute reality. That connection that in the moment led to her liberation of mind, that freed her mind from suffering completely. Bathing my feet, I watched the bath water spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind, the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went to my room, checked the bed, and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. Just as the lamp went out, my mind was freed. So her description here is really so timeless so accessible. We can almost picture her there with the wash basin, mindful of the coolness of the water, the touch of it on her skin, all the movements of washing, and then lifting the basin and pouring out the water, the glint and the glimmer of it flowing across the ground. You can imagine her really settling into the present moment, each sensation of lifting her lamp walking to her room, preparing for sleep, just as you all are doing here. Sitting on her bed and moving so carefully and mindfully as she picks up the pin, moves her hand, presses down the wick of the lamp, and in that very moment, connecting so deeply with the simple truth of her experience that her mind broke through to a deeper knowing, a deeper peace, and was liberated from all illusions and the suffering that they bring. If we think about it, there's really only one place that enlightenment can happen, and it's right here, right now. Where else is it going to happen? And we can plan for it to happen somewhere out there, somewhere in the future. But that's just only going to be another moment that's happening right here and right now. It's only by showing up in this moment that freedom becomes accessible to us. It's just through this kind of very simple, direct connection with what's happening that the whole of the Buddha's teaching becomes clear to us. I've heard that Kamala's teacher, Manindra, used to say something along the lines of that if a yogi just sits and knows that they're sitting, then the whole of the Dhamma will be revealed. It's just really that simple. I want to end by reading a famous poem from the suttas called An Excellent Day. And this, this poem is repeated actually a number of times in the suttas, so it's clearly considered important. And you may just want to sit and reflect on its meaning in relation to this teaching. It says, let me not revive the past or in the future build my hopes. For the past has been left behind, and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen experience, 
Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus sincerely, persistently, by day and by night, is one, the the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent day. So let's sit for a minute. With insight, let me see each presently arisen experience. Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. One who dwells thus sincerely, persistently, by day and by night, is one who has had a single excellent day. <laughs> 